As always, despite the, the unique circumstances of today, it's a blessing and it's a pleasure to be able to be here with you today and spend some more time in God's Word. Uh, if you're new to us, especially if you're joining us online this morning, uh, last week we began a series that, that I was calling The End, uh, which is designed to kind of help us walk through and understand this most mystifying book in, in all of our Bibles, the book of Revelation. And we're uniquely positioned, I think, to be able to do this to some degree because of all the work that we did last year. We went through the entire Bible from cover to cover, teaching and, and reading through almost all of it in 2021. And what you'll discover, I think, is that the further you go into Revelation, uh, the more it, it pays to really understand that Genesis through Jude stuff that we've been reading. Uh, the, the more you understand that stuff, the more Revelation makes sense and the less mysterious and the less confusing and the less confounding and weird it all becomes. Uh, now, does that mean that there isn't still some mystery and some confusion and some weird in Revelation? Go like this. No, there's, there's still some. But I think you'll find that it becomes far more coherent and far more approachable the more you understand the Genesis through Jude stuff. And so last week, if you'll remember, we spent our time developing some of the context for understanding this book. Uh, we talked about what apocalypse means, that it isn't an end of the world, destruction kind of language. It's an unveiling, a revealing. You might even call it a revelation. Uh, we talked about what prophecy means, that it's not predictive necessarily in nature, but it, it's, it's a message from God to humanity through these prophets, these mouthpieces of God. We, we also talked about who was, it was written to, that at the very beginning of Revelation, John hears this voice, and the voice tells him, John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches. Send it to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. That those aren't just seven random churches sprinkled throughout the entire known world. Instead, there are these seven specific churches in a, in a very small region of what today would be modern Western Turkey in a Roman province of the day known as Asia. And it just so happened that this region, this province in the first century would have very much been in the midst of dealing with some intense forms of persecution at the hands of the government, the kingdom, the Roman empire of the day that they were living with and living under. And so, so Christians, as a result of that, were deeply, deeply misunderstood by outsiders. And so when outsiders heard what Thomas was talking about, when outsiders heard that Christians ate the body and drank the blood of their leader, well, outsiders assumed that meant cannibalism, not a, a Passover celebration. And when outsiders heard that Christians had love feasts, well, outsiders assumed that meant orgies, not dinner. And when, when outsiders heard that Christians would, wouldn't worship Roman gods, well, the outsiders assumed that they were unpatriotic, that they were even atheists, not believers who'd pledged their only allegiance to a different god, a different king. I'm sorry, yeah, to a different god, different king, different kingdom. And so what resulted from that reality was a, a climate of, of political strife, of political division in the region as friction developed between all of those 
who played along, who, who lived under Roman rule and Roman expectations, and, and those who maintained their focus on a kingdom that was not of this world. And so what I said last week that I want to hopefully kind of come back to today and that I want you to keep very much in the forefront of your minds, both as we move forward in today's message, but also as you touch on Revelation going forward in your life, is that I think understanding Revelation is understanding that Revelation is a deeply, deeply political text. In other words, it cares deeply who is in power and what real power actually begins to look like. And so kind of with that reminder and foundation laid this morning, I'd like to invite you to join me for a word of prayer. Would you be willing to stand where you are? Let's, let's talk to God. Father, the, the words of the song that we just sang cried out to you that you are worthy, that you are holy, Lord, and we, we trust and believe that. And so this morning, as we, we come into your word, I pray that your holy word would come alive in our hearts and in our minds that you would awaken something within us to see and appreciate exactly who you are, exactly how big you are, exactly how powerful you are, as best as we are able, Father. Lord, I pray that today, that this word, this text, would bring us into a place of worship, that our every ounce, every cell in our bodies would bow down to you. And so, Father, today, as I, as I speak, I pray that you would be with me that not a word comes out of my mouth that isn't your word and your Holy Spirit at work. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth. Shape us, mold us. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get started, if you have your Bible handy, uh, go ahead and have that open to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We will get there shortly. Um, but I want to ask, have you ever experienced a moment when, when something that you thought you knew, something that you thought you understood turned out to be anything but? I'll never forget one of those moments for me. Uh, when I was very young, I was maybe four or five years old. Uh, if you know my dad at all, and, and most of you don't, but my dad's kind of had a lot of hobbies over the years. And, and whenever he's in the midst of one of his hobbies, he, he tends to put a lot of time and effort into sort of belonging to the community that, 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 that surrounds that hobby. And so uh, he, he surrounds himself with all these other people, and he's, he's chopping it up with them about trends and news and just trying to stay up to date on whatever's happening in the world of, of that thing, whatever it is. And so as a kid... About that four or five-year-old age, my dad bought this Suzuki Intruder motorcycle. And, and the next thing I knew, it, it felt like weekly, we were hanging out at the Suzuki dealership or the Suzuki store, uh, looking at parts and talking to all the people and just geeking out on all things Suzuki. Uh, now, before I go much further, my dad would want me to say, his heart has always been with Harley, never Suzuki. But I, I, Suzuki is what we could afford at the time, not Harley. So we did the next best thing. It would be very important that I, I told you that. So anyway, we're, we're hanging out at the Suzuki store all the time. I'm, I'm doing what every kid does when they go to the store like that. This is before the days of smartphones. It's before even Game Boys were a thing. And, and I'm, so I'm just 
doing what every kid does. I'm at the store. I'm trying to kill time. I'm walking around. I'm looking at stuff. And the next thing I know, I don't know what it was, but something spooks me. And, and I, I turn and I make a beeline. I run as fast as I can back to my dad and I grab his leg, this leg that represented safety and comfort to me. And I stop and I look up into his eyes and it's not my dad. It's, it's some other man. Um, you ever done that? Or have you ever had your leg hugged accidentally by the wrong kid? I've done that. I've, I've been hugged by the wrong kid. Uh, it's, it's common, right? It's common for kids to do. Uh, but something about that moment really shook me, and, and it stood out enough that I still remember it all these years later. And I think what it was, I think what shook me was that for a brief moment, everything I thought I, I knew to be true, I knew that was my dad, I knew that was his leg, I knew that's where comfort was. Everything I thought I knew to be true was wrong. It was wrong. Because this is where my dad was. This was his leg. This was his safety until it wasn't. And I had to very quickly figure out how to kind of solve or make new sense of, of this, this new reality. And so if you've ever been there before or had a similar experience where, you know, your ground was shook for just a moment, I want you to kind of hold on to that memory as we shift our attention to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 this morning. Because I think that memory kind of helps set the stage for where we are just a little bit. That after those seven letters that are written to seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, John begins to describe this, this new vision or, or this further facet of the vision that God's given him. So this is Revelation 4 verse 1. John says, After this, I looked, and, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, in some of my reading this week, N.T. Wright, in talking about this verse, said this. And I think, his, his, I think his experience is very similar to mine. He says, for many years, I imagined that John looked up to the sky and saw sort of far away, this tiny but bright distant star, like an open door through which he was invited to enter into the heavenly world. He says, I, I now think quite differently. He says, heaven and earth, as I've often said, are not in biblical theology separated by this great gulf as they are in, in much popular imagination. Heaven, God's sphere of reality, is right here close beside us, intersecting with our ordinary reality. It is not so much like a door opening high up in the sky far away. It's more like a door opening right in front of us, where before we could only see this room, this field, this street. And sure enough, we've, we've been talking about this reality here and there throughout much of the past year as we've read through and taught through the Bible, and we've talked about heaven and earth and so on that we often think of them as two different places where you leave one and sort of escape to the other, go to the other. But instead, what we've tried to explore is that there's something more akin to, to two different dimensions, perhaps, of the same space, the same place. And, and one of those dimensions, ours, is largely ignorant of or blind to or unaware of the other. And yet it doesn't make it any less real. 
Uh, this week I was, I was watching with my son, um, okay, <laughs> at the advanced, thank you for that reminder. Um, I was watching with my son, uh, Andrew, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hook. We can flash this for just a moment. Go ahead and bring that down for just a moment, Andrew. Um, if you've seen this movie, if you've seen the movie Hook, you may remember there's this scene where, where Peter, who doesn't yet know that he's actually Peter Pan, is, it finds himself at this large feast full of all this imaginary food or invisible food. And so all the, the lost boys and Tinkerbell, they're all feasting and they're belching and they're licking their fingers and all kinds of stuff. And Peter's sitting there and he's totally frustrated because of all this childlike juvenile behavior in front of him. He's hungry. He wants to eat. And everyone's messing around eating fake food. And so finally he decides, all right, I'm just going to play along. And he picks up a spoon and he dips it in, in a bowl of, of nothing and he flicks it, he catapults it at his rival, Rufio. And that's, this is the picture that you can put up right now. Um, and so when the spoon is unleashed, it's empty. But a fraction of a second later, Rufio is hit in the face with some red and blue concoction, I don't know, mashed potatoes or something. And it's then and there that Peter realizes that there's much, much more to the story than meets the eye. And suddenly he looks around, and there before him, where once he saw nothing, is this delicious feast all around him. You can put the next slide up, Andrew, that he was blind to be able to see before. So the door to heaven in John's vision, I think, is kind of like that. There's something there that we were unable to see before, but now John sees. And so he continues, this is verse 2. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. He says, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And so right off the bat, I want you to notice two things. First, I want you to pay attention to sort of the, the very unspecific, undefined nature of the one who is on the throne. In other words, we're, we're aware that someone is there, that something is there, but thus far, very little information is given to us in the way of details about who or what it is. Uh, and this is going to become important, I think, as we get further into our message today. We'll revisit this. Second, this is also the beginning of sort of an onslaught of imagery that the Revelation writer is going to use that is borrowed directly from language that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, specifically, most usually, in the prophets. So, when John speaks... <clears throat> When John speaks of a rainbow that surrounds this throne, this isn't the first time, whether you realize it or not, that you've, you've read this imagery. This is a hyperlink. This is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. And we can put that up here, Andrew. Ezekiel says, Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, when I saw it, Ezekiel says, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, we're not going to have time to, to sort of touch on all of these, but I want you to begin to see that Revelation is largely not a text full of brand new, never before seen imagery and language from your Bibles. 
It's a, it's a master class. I've said this before about texts like Hebrews, but Revelation is a master class incorporating the entirety of Scripture, everything we've, we've read and known into this story that's being told. And so verse 4, John keeps going. We'll put this up, Andrew. This is uh, Revelation 4.4. 4. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones, and, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came these flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. <coughs> in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. <coughs> also in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, so it was clear as crystal. Sit with that for just a moment. I'll be right back. Now, in the text that we just read a moment ago, there's, there's a lot that we could unpack. I'm not going to do it all, but for simplicity, there's two things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, we have these 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones that are surrounding the, the one throne. And there's a lot of different ideas, as you might imagine, about what all of this means. One of the popular ideas is that the 24 thrones represent the, the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 equals 24. Um, but I actually don't think that's what this is in reference to. I want you to remember what I said a few minutes ago. This is a deeply political text. And so much of the imagery and language that's used in here is meant to evoke images of the Roman Empire and its imagery. And so because of that, I'm, I'm fairly persuaded that this image of one throne, throne is very political language and, and imagery in its own right, surrounded by 24, is, is actually designed to evoke images of the Roman emperor who is surrounded by his council of 24 lictors. What's interesting is that prior to the emperor Domitian, there would have only been 12 lictors in the Roman council. But after Domitian, that number bumps up to 24. And so if you're kind of confused by what I'm saying, think of it like this. There's certain numbers that if you were trying to draw parallels with uh, our government or our leadership would be meaningful to you. If I suddenly started using the, the number 538, that would mean something to Americans because 538 is the, the number of members of Congress that we have. Well, 24, I think, would be a very meaningful number for those who are thinking of, of Roman rule and imagery. We would instantly recognize what 24 means. Furthermore, we also know from history that the Emperor Domitian insisted on being referred to by a specific term. He wanted to be called Lord and God. Lord and God. And so in verse 11, which we're going to get to in just a few moments, I'll point it out again when we get there, uh, what is this one on the throne called? Lord and God. And I would insist that this is, this is very, very purposeful language that John is using. Number two, while the imagery of, of lightning and thunder seems ominous and scary, and I'm sure if you were there and you saw it, it would be, uh, it's not there to scare you. Instead, again, it's, it's a, a hyperlink 
to language of, of theophany, of, of the manifestation of the presence of God that throughout Scripture in places like Exodus 19 and Job 36 and Ezekiel 1, whenever God is present, lightning and thunder language is often there with him too. So, let's keep going. This is chapter 4, verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stopped. And so if we're being honest, we kind of step back for a moment. The language and the imagery is getting perhaps a little bit weirder now. We have these four creatures. They're surrounding one throne. They have six wings. There's eyes all over the place, even under their wings. And there's these four different faces, a lion, an ox, a man, an eagle. What, what, what is all this about? Well, again, this is largely Ezekiel chapter 1 language. And we actually have a midrash, which is like an ancient Hebrew commentary that explains very much what's going on here. This is an excerpt from Midrash Shemoth Ramah. <clears throat> this is what was said. Man is exalted among all creatures. The eagle among the birds. The ox among domestic animals. The lion among wild beasts. All of them have received dominion. In other words, each of these living creatures that are named here represents the apex creature within creation, right? The lion is the apex predator, the apex wild animal, the apex beast. The ox is the apex domesticated animal. The man is sort of the apex of all creation, and the eagle is the apex of all birds. And what do they do? What do they do here? What do the greatest creatures on earth do? Do they wear their dominion proudly in the presence of God? No. They worship. When they come into the presence of God, no matter if they're the apex of whatever, they worship. They become second. They become subservient. They become awestruck. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It doesn't matter who I am. We are nothing compared to the greatness and the holiness of the one who is on the throne. And so verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever and ever. You can put this up, Andrew. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, there's the Domitian language, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, not Domitian. And by your will they were created, not his. 
and have their being. Church, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how powerful or important you may be elsewhere in some other facet of your life, in the presence of God, what do you do? You fall down and you worship. Because He and He alone is worthy. That's the vision of Revelation chapter 4. N.T. Wright tells a story about his early days as a student, and it's very relatable to me as I reflect on my college years and the conversations that I would often have with my friends and so on. But I suspect his story might be very relatable to some of you as well, especially those of you who have been coming to church maybe for years or decades and you've heard sermon after sermon, you've read book after book, and you've sat in, in group study after group study, you've, you've been around all of this stuff. He says, when I was a student, many of us busied ourselves with all kinds of Christian activities, teaching and learning, studying scripture, evangelism, prayer meetings, and so on. We went to church quite a lot, but, but never, I think, reflected much on what we were doing there. There was, after all, a sermon to learn from, and the, the hymns were good teaching aids as well. It was a, a time of learning and fellowship. But he says, when a friend suggested at one point that worship was actually the center of everything, the rest of us looked at him oddly. It, it seemed a bit of a cop-out. He says, now of course I know he was right. Worship is what we were made for. This scene remains the foundation for everything that follows in the rest of this powerful and disturbing book, all that is to come flows from the fact that the whole creation is called to worship the one true God as its creator. Worship is who we are. It's what we were made to do, church. But we aren't done with what John is saying here. Let's look at Revelation 5, verse 1. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with these seven seals. And so as you think about the hyperlinks, the imagery that's going to be relevant throughout the rest of Scripture, well, Ezekiel chapter 2 talks about a scroll with writing on both sides. And Isaiah chapter 29 and Daniel 12 talk about the scroll that's, that's being sealed but unable to be opened except by the right person at the right time. Meanwhile, this, this number seven is a, a slide that you can put up there, Andrew. <clears throat> the number seven is used throughout Scripture to depict completeness, perfection, holiness, fullness. This scroll that's being held in, in John's vision is the last will and testament of the one on the throne, the God in heaven, and it is, it is fully complete. It is fully sealed. It has seven seals. This is it. It's done. Verse 2 says, you can put this up, son. And I saw a, a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or, or even look inside it. John says, I, I, I wept and I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Church, here's, here's the rub. As we well know, from the beginning of time, God set out to carry out 
His grand plan for all of humanity, for all of creation in and through humanity. He created Adam and Eve. He created man and woman as these image-bearing ambassadors of God on earth. And, And as you well know, they did exactly what you and I have done in their lives. They fell short. They sinned. Raise your hand if that's you. Do you relate with this picture at all? So what is God to do? What is he supposed to do? Does he he just bail on his plan? To use football terminology, we're in the playoffs. Does he audible away from the play that he called to, to, to call some other play to move on to a plan B? As you picture the scene for just a moment in time that the tension in this throne room is palpable, John's worried. Is no one worthy? Is no one able to open the scroll? To look inside? Are, are, are we just up a creek with, with no options here? I don't know if you follow cryptocurrency news much. Any crypto fans in the room? There's a one or two of us who, who call Lake Merced home. You, you may know a little bit about Bitcoin. Have anyone ever heard of Bitcoin before? Surprises if you head shaking no. Uh, Bitcoin is this kind of non-tangible, virtual currency. And some years back, it was basically worthless. Uh, If you go back just five years, for instance, one Bitcoin was worth five or 600 bucks. If you go back nine years, that one Bitcoin was worth something like $13. But today, if you happen to have one Bitcoin, that same Bitcoin would be worth, depending on the time of year, somewhere between $45,000 $45,000 and $60,000 to have one Bitcoin to your name. And so all of a sudden, a few years back when this really started to take off and, and, and gain a lot of value, there were a whole bunch of people who sat back and scratched their heads and said, wait a second, I think I owned a bunch of Bitcoin like 10 years ago that was worthless then. I've long since forgotten about it. But imagine if I found it today. Imagine what I would be able to do today. I, I, could, have a, I could be a millionaire, a multimillionaire. The problem is that unless you have the right information, i.e. your Bitcoin key, which is this long, I I forget how many digit, alphanumeric code that's sort of your identification, unless you have that key, you can't access that money, even though it's yours. You can't open the seal to the scrolls, so to speak. And so sure enough, just like you see here, There are estimates of around $4 billion worth of Bitcoin that are out there that are basically lost forever because people don't have their key. They can't open their scroll. And so imagine the the frustration, the intensity of the feelings you would feel if you knew, if I just had this 24-character code, I would have a a million dollars or $10 million or $50 million to my name but I don't have it and there's no way I can get it. What am I going to do? Well, if you can feel that emotion, that's sort of what John is feeling right now in the throne room. Is is nobody worthy? Can nobody open the scroll? Verse five. But then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And so immediately, what kind of imagery do you get? Well, notice. Notice what John hears. He hears triumph language. He hears lion language. And all of that is rooted in places like Genesis chapter 49 and Isaiah 11. And it conveys that the battle has been won. He's triumphed. He has won victory. Over who? Well, the, the sort of the Babylon of its day, Rome. He's, he's gained victory over Rome. Justice has been served. The oppressors have been defeated. Victory is ours, and the lion is worthy. Except, not, not so fast. This is what John hears. But look at what he turns and then sees. This is chapter 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Well, in the imagery of war, there's, there's nothing mighty or triumphal about a lamb. In fact, you think back over the last couple of years, particularly if you're on social media, what sort of political rhetoric have we liked to throw around during, during COVID? right? Oh, they're just being sheep. That's just a bunch of sheeple. There's an image you can throw up there, Andrew, if you'd like to. But it's an insult. It's an insult because the imagery of a lamb is not imagery of victory or triumph or power. The imagery of a lamb is one of weakness. And yet, what does John turn and see? He sees a lamb who had been slain. Commentator on Revelation, M. Eugene Boring, says that conquering in both cases, that of Christ and that of Christians, means no more or less than dying. It never in Revelation designates any destructive judgment on the enemies of Christ or Christians. Jesus stood before the Roman court, was faithful unto death, and this was his victory and his reign. John calls Christians to the same messianic conquest. For Christians, what it means to win has been redefined by the cross. And so triumph and all that comes with it has been transformed and redefined. And what's more, pay attention to where the Lamb is standing. The lamb is standing at the center of the throne. The lamb is encircled by the four living creatures. The lamb is encircled by the 24 elders on their thrones. And so remember that vague, undefined, unspecific description of the one who's on the throne back in chapter 4 that we talked about just a few minutes ago? There's a reason for that vagueness. And it's intended to draw your attention to the sort of the, the both-and nature of the lamb the Lamb who has been slain stands on the throne with Lord God Almighty. And that should tell us something about who the slain Lamb really is and what He's a symbolic of. Because He's not just any Lamb. Verse 6 continues. Go ahead and put this up, Andrew. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In other words, remember what the number seven means. He's an all-powerful lamb. He's an all-seeing kind of lamb. 
And in verse 7, go ahead, Andrew. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. He says in verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. There's a lot going on here, church. But what is this image or scene that John is depicting? Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, every creature in heaven, every creature on the earth, Every creature under the earth, every creature on the sea, every creature in the sea, what are they doing? They're bowing, they're worshiping, they're kneeling before the Lamb who was slain because only He is worthy. Church, I want you to step back and just sort of reflect on where we've come so far. What is John's vision beginning to unveil or reveal, particularly to those seven churches from last week who are living under the oppression of another empire? He's revealing a more perfect truth and a more perfect reality that right there on the other side of what we can see, right there on the other side of what we think we know to be true, Right there on the other side of what is unjust and the evil and the oppressive powers and the governments and the kingdoms and the empires of all the earth, the ones who kill us and maim us and hurt us and enslave us, right on the other side of that is an all-powerful lion and lamb who conquered not with the sword, but by being slain. Because it was in being slain 
that the guilty, that you and me and everyone else might have a chance to be set free. Revelation reminds us that everything and everyone will bow before the throne and the power of the Lamb. And so N.T. Wright says this. He says, There have been down the years plenty of lying Christians. Yes, they think Jesus died for us, but now God's will is to be done in the lion-like fashion, through brute force and violence to make the world come into line to enforce God's will. No, replies John. Think of the lion, yes, but gaze at the lamb. He continues, and there have been plenty of lamb Christians. Yes, they think Jesus may have been the lion of Judah, but that's a political idea, which we should reject because salvation consists in having our sins wiped away so that we can get out of this compromised world and, and go off to heaven instead. No, replies John. Gaze at the lamb, but remember that it's the lion's victory. He is one. And remember as we listen and look that the Lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. He is, that is to say, all-powerful and all-seeing. And He has the right to take the scroll and open it and everything else follows from this moment. Everything else follows. Church, we live in a world where there is great temptation to be seduced by the powers that are all around us. To be so caught up in, in the tangible, in what's here right now in front of my face, to see only my immediate blessings and only my immediate sufferings, to remember only the powers and the principalities of this world, and to forget that right there beside you, even though you cannot yet see it, is the reality of the real throne room of God in heaven where everything and everybody in all of creation bows and worships the Lamb. That's, that's where in the throne room with, with Him as a, a, a pleasing aroma. It's, it's our prayers are right there with Him. The prayers of God's people. And so like that, that little Josh who ran to his dad at four or five years old, 100% confident that he knew exactly what he was going to do, where, where he was going, and where to find this source of safety, only to look up and realize he'd grabbed the wrong leg. Many of us have sought refuge and safety with some wrong legs and some wrong powers and some wrong ideas about what it means to be the people of God. Church Revelation encourages us to look up, to recognize and to remember that beyond what we can see lies a greater reality where no weapon formed against us can stand. That victory has already been won by the Lamb who was slain. And so be careful. Be careful with whom you seek your safety. There is still just one God at the center of that throne room. And only He is worthy of your praise. Only He is worthy of your allegiance. Only He is worthy of your worship.
Church, this is a, a difficult moment for me because I hate change. And yet in just a moment, my, my role here will change. Uh, it would have been very tempting and easy to sort of make this big, grand, farewell kind of message. But I couldn't think of a better way to bring all of this to a close than to say that this has never been about me and it's not about anyone else in this room either. Only Jesus is worthy of our praise. Only Him. And it's up to the rest of us to remember to fall prostrate before Him on the throne. The first century church under Roman rule knew and experienced great loss. Many of Jesus' apostles were martyred. But the gospel remained good. And the mission always carried on. Everyone in this room is alive and well by the grace of God. And while I step into a new season, those same truths still remain for us. The gospel is still good news. And the mission must always, always carry on. And so that's my hope. That's my prayer as we bring our time together to a close this morning. We were all made to worship. So let's remember that even beyond what we can see, He's near. He's worthy. And let's worship Him with every blink of our eye, every utterance of our lips, every gesture with our hands, every thought that we think. Let's make it all about Him until our, our time and our work on earth is done. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in this life that's out of our control. And as someone who likes to control a whole awful lot, that's a, a hard reality for me to, to grasp sometimes. But Father, we need those reminders that, that there behind the curtain, beyond what we can see, you're very real. And your power is very powerful. And you've taken care of all of this. And so when we're tempted to read the news cycles, get worried about this, that, or the other, when we're tempted to think about our own well-being, when we're tempted to get so wrapped up in these 60 or 70 or 80 years here on earth, what, you know, whether they go the way we want them to or not, we need that reminder that somewhere you're on the other side of that door in your throne room and you're in control and the Lamb is victorious. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make that reality very true in our hearts and in our lives today. That we would surrender all of our, our desire, all of our inclinations, all of our temptations to worry and grasp and try to be in control and manipulate things to go the way that we want them to and just surrender to you because you're worthy. Father, thank you for all that you've done to bring us into your presence this morning. 
Thank you for these last three years for our family. It's been such a tremendous blessing. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get ready to sing, if, if the Holy Spirit has done anything in your heart today, and you thought, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to give my life to that lamb who was slain. I trust the one who is on the throne. He is worthy not only of our praise, but he is worthy of my everything. I want to give my entire life to him. And I want to invite you to do that as we sing this song. You can be baptized into Christ. You can receive him as Lord and King and Savior of your life. And I pray that you would. Let's stand. Let's sing.